0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to have the VizRT team on on hand to talk about the new TriCaster now, deployment options, Viz Now cloud, and a lot more. So they'll be here to answer your questions. It's going to be a great second hour. So stay tuned for that. And If you've got questions, go ahead and throw those into Makana. If you've got general questions, of course, you can uh, use this little uh, QR code here, or just go to op- askofficehours.com. Uh, and that can, you can use that 24-7. So if you see this video later and you have a general question you want to throw into the mix, uh, you can go ahead and do that 24-7. And then we will uh, bring those questions into our into our system and uh, answer them as we go. So make sure to ask those questions and throw your questions in right now and make sure to vote on those questions as we move forward. By the way, um, the new, if uh, in Discord, uh, at the very top of the Alex announcements, you'll see a a link for the um, the radio app that we're still testing in test flight. Um, and if you're interested in that, you can go ahead and download it. Just got updated yesterday. And um, it's got a way for you to ask these questions built right into it. Um, So being able to, you can ask the questions without logging in or anything else, just by clicking on the little button at the top. Um, You can also join and jump into Makana if you want to, so you can vote and do all the other things as well. So um, check out the radio app. Uh, It is, if you're in Discord, there's a link for the test flight. And uh, we'll go ahead and jump into the questions. Jason, what do we have?
1: Thank you, Alex. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in your Zoom background might influence the first impression you make. Thoughts, sadly, not tested against real background. Go, ahead, John.
2: This is a step. I think this is a step in the right direction. This, this. Uh, I didn't read the the actual study yet. I read the article, so I'm going to follow up with reading the complete study. But I looked at it, glanced at it quickly. Uh, the the shelving scored the highest with books behind you and then plants behind that and then having a goofy background scored the worst the 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 most untrustworthy out of all the backgrounds they tried so i i think this is a step in the right direction
0: Yeah, I'm going to definitely agree with, um, I think shells are great behind you, by the way. I think that that's a, that's a great solution there. (laughs) So anyway, but I, I, you know, I think that having something that looks good, that is, that looks contextual, like one of the things I found is that it was a nice, I thought it was a nice look when we had Calvin in our office and we just had gear behind him, and it was very, you know, it, it worked. I think it, it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters that much about what's there. I think it matters a lot more because people are using webcams and everything's in focus, and I think that's a bit of a distraction. I think that there's a real argument for um, having things that you'll see everybody here, I think, in the panel today uh, has a softer background behind them with some kind of camera that's going to get there. Um, the big thing is is that it's gonna, we're really going to get to a point where, and, and I think Apple is probably doing the best job internally of, of doing the blur, The problem with the blur on almost all of the other systems is that it blurs too much. And the reason for that, I think, is that it's not designed to simulate a large framed camera. It's designed to obscure what's behind you. And so that heavy blur, I think, is a real distraction um, and really problematic. And so, but it's designed as kind of a softer way of putting noth- nothing back there. And I get why people do that; and it's because they're all in, the, you know, these um, open offices or their homes or whatever. But I think that people do have to take what we're doing seriously, you know, and and think about it. It 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 affects their job prospects. It affects their sales. It affects. It does affect all of those things, and they should not take that for granted, you know, like it's, it, it really isn't just you showing up. I mean, we've talked about it over and over again. How you appear is how a lot of people make decisions about that. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
3: Did they mention Edison phonographs with lighted awards on top? And did they mention that at all?
0: They said that that was one of the best, especially if it was some kind of technical Emmy. They said that if you have a technical Emmy and you can put it behind you, it is gonna crush good street it. cred yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i gotta get better lights for it see because i have i have a star wars camera that you can barely see see that's that's i don't have any emmys but i've got a camera that. so um next next question
1: Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina writes in, Alex, which USB-C cable did you ultimately decide was most dependable for the Insta360 link in your kit, or did you decide to ditch Insta in favor of the um, ob- obspot alternatives?
0: Um, I, I am still using the Insta360 because the interface to control it is, um, I have found to be um, more uh, stable, so that's 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 there. the The ones that I'm using now with the Insta 360 are the wait for it here. Let me. Um, these are the ones that you can see that I purchased it a couple times. Let's see here. Um, they are. So these are the a- a- Anope An-O-P- <laughs> know How to say it? Uh, Ten foot. I so there's a couple of things about those. Is that number one is they are the um, gen, uh, 20 gigabit, uh, USB 3.2 gen two, um, the data tra- transfer cables, they'll take 240 Watts, 4k 60. Um, they're, they're a little pricey for a USB C cable. Um, they are 10 feet long. I have not been successful at anything longer than 10 feet reliably. So 10 feet seems to be the, the place where these work, um, the best. Uh, they have that that right angle works really really well with how I set up my Insta 360s. So I like to have it come as a right angle out of the Insta 360. It's easier for me to manage. So that's why I have that that right angle there. And um, and it's uh, yeah. So that's that's the one that I that I picked. Um, and I've been successful. And I've got I don't know. Four or five of them now. So, um, and they, they work well. I pack them in with my, with each camera has one of those cables packed into the little case that I have with it. So, um, and they've worked well. Next question
1: Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, BC, Canada writes in When you open a lens to values like f1.4, I notice the subject softens slightly and you lose sharpness. Why is that?
3: Courtney? well because your depth of field narrows the wider the aperture the narrower the depth of field so if you stop down your camera to like f8 f22 you're going to get a much deeper depth of field Um, and uh, you'll have much more range of focus than uh, the things that will be in focus. So when you open up that uh, lens to f1.4, you're at the minimal amount of depth of field, so you have to make sure your focus is set very carefully. And depending upon the aperture, I mean, depending upon the sensor size, Uh, Your depth of field could be like, you know, it'd be your eyeball will be in focus, but the tip of your nose will be out. That can be how narrow that depth of field is. So if you have problems keeping things in focus, stop down uh, to, you know, at least five, six, maybe, and add some more light in uh, so that you uh, have a, a little deeper depth of field and enough to still keep the background out of focus if it's five or six feet behind you.
0: The other thing that that is interesting about it, there's, there's two more things to add to that, is that if your camera is sitting here, and you have a subject that is right here, you have to remember that the focus point is the distance from the camera. So you have, um, you know, this this focus point, but remember that in a larger frame, this number, this angle, at the same plane, is further away. Than the middle, so so as things go off to the side, um, you know, as it as it goes off the side, it may be in the same plane here, but this is effectively, um, you know, probably somewhere like here, you know, so it can so things can drop off a of focus to the side as well, um, so that that angle ma- makes a difference. Finally lenses tend to be the sharpest at 5.6. And this is not a depth of field problem. This is a glass problem. And so generally, 5.6 is your sharpest point and it starts to drop off after that. So it will get softer regardless of the depth of field. It will get softer as as you get... uh, as you, as you open it up now, it's, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get a 1.4 lens or a 1.2 lens. Those are great lenses. It means that they will be, those will actually be sharper at 2.8 or something like that than a 2.8 lens, you know, so a 2.8 lens is at the end of the barrel. Um, and so when you have that, the same thing with zoom, zooms tend to be a little bit soft on either end of the barrel. And so, so you, you know, you just have to kind of think about those things, but when you push it to the outer edge, those things tend to soften up a little bit. So that's, that kind of comes with the territory.
3: Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah and if everything if you can't find focus at all uh check your back focus cuz the distance between the back of the lens and the sensor could be off And if you have a back-focus adjustment, like some video lenses, have a back-focus adjustment that changes that distance. So if that's off, then nothing will be in focus. Also, uh, remember the length of the lens makes a difference in depth of field as well. The longer the lens, the narrower the depth of field. The wider the lens, the deeper the depth of field. So uh, if you have a zoom lens, uh, get wider and get closer, and you'll have a bigger depth of field. And remember that... that if you don't have a back focus,
0: you don't have, you can't zoom in, focus and zoom back out. So if you're on a still still lens on a still camera, um, the only time that that works is if you have back focus and you've been able to focus it so that it can go all the way through the zoom range. Otherwise, so sometimes people will have a still camera, they'll zoom in because they're, they've seen that happen before they 'll zoom in and, and uh, focus and then they'll zoom back out and you'll be a little soft and people do that more often when they have the camera wide open because it's hard to see at, at full resolution it's also why a lot of us like to have really big monitors to look at our cameras when we're you know twenty four or bigger when we're looking at focus on a camera when we 're checking it for a studio shot or an interview, especially when we 're really in short up the field we want to just we don't want to zoom in we just want to see a four k image or whatever that is at a very large screen so that we can really uh, delineate what that is. Um, focus Assist also helps with those things. This is not so much for Alex; he knows that. But for the folks that are watching, um, the but Focus Assist helps because what it does is does a high pass filter um, that allows it to look for outlines. If you do a high pass in Photoshop, you'll see how Focus Assist works. It does a high pass filter, and then it and then it increases the contrast, and then it turns it red, um, and that's going to tell you what things are in focus. So when they have demon dies, <laughs> you know, they, that means that their eyes are in focus. And if something's going to be in and out of focus, uh, the eyes are all that matter. You know, like if you're going to make a choice generally for an interview or anything else. Next question.
1: Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York writes in the music on Survivor drowned out the dialogue so badly it was almost unwatchable suggestions for a sound bar that will allow me to adjust the center channel that connects to Apple TV. Don't want a multi-speaker surround set up in the bedroom. <laughs> Good Courtney.
3: Uh, A buddy of mine just got uh, one that has a Samsung TV. It depends on the brand of your TV, I guess. But the Samsung soundbar uh, sounds pretty good. He was having the same problem. He couldn't understand the dialogue in a lot of movies. And this one has this adaptive sound, which uh, if you read their description, it uh, it says it... uh, dynamically uh, optimized sound for voice clarity so you can follow along with the dialogue. So what it does is it actually boosts frequencies around uh, 4 to 8,000 cycles and it uh, uh, ups the center channel a little bit to help dialogue be a little more clear and audible in those movies where they tend to drown them out with the music and the sound effects. In a lot of receivers you're gonna be able to and sound bars, it,
0: it they have a design for it to do calculations. So you either put a mic out in front of them, so you put a mic where you're gonna sit, and then it runs all the it runs a simulation across those speakers and makes a decision about what how each speaker needs to um sound to get the proper D B in that center pla in that center location of where the optimum place to sit is. Most of the time those receivers also have a manual adjustment, so you can go in and override those manual those adjustments I was in my uh, when we were in Cape hatteras my the, the it turned out that the place had a really nice seven dot one surround uh, actually seven dot one dot four and I sat there and just readjusted it because I know how to i just i know what I want it to sound like I know that it wasn 't accurate, but I was able to move it around the reason i 'm telling you this is because Hidden in that is the center channel gain, <laughs> so you can pull that center. Gain. If, if you don't have anything else, you can move that center channel up and say that you're. What you do is, you, a lot of times you don't have volume. You tell it how many feet you are away. So instead of it, you might be twelve feet away, but if you tell it you're, you know, eighteen feet away, it's going to come up, and it's not going to be accurate. It's not going to be the artistic intent of the director for you to do that. But obviously, you're not agreeing with the artistic t- intent right now, um, and so. But most of these things that are making things more clear are simply bringing the center the center channel up and because most people's uh, most of dialogue is sitting is coming right down that center channel um, so if you can increase that it's on its own now you can also look for receivers that have XLR outputs um, we have some receivers that we use for this um, so these are XLR outputs and then you can have powered speakers
3: and then you just turn that speaker up in the center I'm um, good Courtney yeah, you didn't say what brand TV it was, but some of these, if you have, like I said, a Samsung TV and a Samsung soundbar, maybe a Vizio TV and a Vizio soundbar, they have this thing called Symphony Sound, which actually utilizes the soundbar and the, the uh, rear-facing speakers that are usually built into most flat-panel TVs. So they combine all those speakers for uh, you know more of a surround-type uh, sound. Yeah, it's,
0: it's becoming a pretty big problem, and it, it's a culture you know, in, in Hollywood right now to move the audio back in. And it's it's getting pretty, I mean, in the feature film area, I think it's getting pretty destructive because I know um, I have friends and family that don't go to the movies anymore because they can't understand what anyone's saying. And so they, they would rather stay home and watch it with subtitles. <laughs> I don't think that producers are really getting their arms around the fact that directors and some of the sound engineers are actually destroying their business. <laughs> so so they, they, hopefully they'll pull back a little bit. Uh, next question.
1: Hasma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa writes in on three different Mac minis at two sites after auto update cannot access discord. The message, sorry, you have been blocked. You are unable to access discord.com. You can email the site owner to let them know you were blocked. Anyone else having this issue. Um, I think that
0: this is a security issue inside of the Mac OS, and I don't know where it is because I haven't put the I haven't installed those yet. Um there are a lot you want you're going to want to go into the security area of that of that process I think. Um I don't think that there's um unless someone else has something else. No awesome. no, they had
2: they had major issues this morning. Was it the just but it's just this one because I've had this problem with
0: a variety of applications and even um you know on the on the Mac. Um, where Apple keeps t- you know tightening these these screws a little bit. Um, go ahead, Jason.
1: Yeah, Discord is an Atom app. If you're installing the app itself, my guess is that the issue has to do with the 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 constant toolings around of private relay.
0: Yeah, I think it's it it could be that they're having trouble with it, but it could also be that there's a that the new uh, update is closing off some gaps because Apple keeps on turning those dials tighter. Um, they're, they're doing it kind of very slowly. If you look at where we are now, where we were three years ago, it's changed pretty dramatically and we can expect the next three years to be even tighter. Um, next question.
1: John Pretto, both on the panel and in Las Vegas, Nevada writes in Zuckerberg was on Lex Friedman with photorealistic VR conferencing yesterday. Thoughts? Uh, go ahead, Guy.
4: Yeah, this was really interesting. I I love Lex's, um, passion i mean he just really he, he's super impressed with this I'll, I'll go ahead and cut over to to, to, a, to a little uh, let me, uh, sorry let me uh, jump over here uh so you can see there's actually a low bandwidth transmission here because this is a scan so they're scanning their faces and then what the data that's being sent is is very uh, low transmission. So this is the future. I mean, being able to talk to people and seeing all these little nuances. So they're talking with the goggles on, and uh, Lex is in in uh, Austin. Uh, I think Mark is in corporate headquarters in California, and he was saying that it felt like they were there. I mean, he was really super passionate that this is the best that he's seen. So it's an episode worth watching because this is the future. Being able to do low transmission. Uh, and have the goggles on and have these people be almost life-size in front of your face. And you could change you could change how big they are. And I think people forget that, how big uh, and the detail of the nuances of like, uh, you know, physical things like your eyes fluttering, uh, blinking, things like that, all all occur. So it, it's a fascinating episode. I'm anx- anxious to hear what John says about it. Go, John.
2: Well played, Mr. Cocker. <laughs> you did a great job i I was super skeptical because Zuck's been showing this technology off with cartoons for three or four years now. And then when I saw this, I, I was impressed. And like like Zuck said it was lower bandwidth than video transmission. So I uh, I don't know, it might be interesting. It might be nice to see a, a zoom with all three D faces rather than two D faces. I don't know. We'll see. Good Courtney.
3: Yeah, does it use your voice or a synthesized voice? and the other question is uh since you're presenting a photorealistic avatar you know can you just choose your avatar like i want to be john wayne today or you know pick a dead celebrity uh so it seems like you know if they have a scan of that person you could be anybody you want to seems to be trust is going to kind of go out the window if you go to this type of uh, thing i don't think we're gonna have any trouble telling who
0: whether someone's real or not for a while i mean uh, feature films have a, have been doing this for a, quite a while, and if you look at Star Wars, yeah, but if they had,
3: everybody's an avatar, they're all going to look equally bad. So you won't be able to tell is that the avatar of the person I'm talking to, or an avatar yeah. of somebody else. You know,
0: yeah, I think that if I was, if I had to pitch, if someone said you you can pitch a, you know, you're going to pitch against three people, and two of them are going to be on a on an avatar, and you can choose whether you want to be on an avatar or or a physical camera. I'd 100% take the physical camera, um, and that's just mostly looking at Princess Leia from uh, from, from Rogue One. Um, you know, and that I mean that's really similar technology. So it's progressively it's getting a lot better. Um, I think that there the the uh, level of data that is required to get this perfect, and I, I think it has to be perfect for people to not feel like there's there's this a thing that we've talked about a, a bunch that you're lower brain needs a lot of needs, needs a bunch of things to feel connected. And your upper brain will say, Hey, this is, this is that person. And it it feels like it should be a connection to them. Um, But it's not, it's not feeding the lower brain what it actually needs, which is that connection, which is going to feel much more over. This is why we try to get a run of virtual backgrounds and why we try to not, you know, there's a lot of things we try to turn off. Even I'll, I'll argue, even the skin smoothing stuff bothers the lower brain, um, you know, and they just want to see the lower brain just wants to see a real person in front of it. And the upper brain is telling it, this is great. This is the, this is the future, but the Delta between the upper brain and the lower brain, what the upper brain's saying and what the lower brain is is feeling is depression and i think that when we look at people being connect disconnected from each other Part of it is all this other stuff that we're doing around it. Um, And I think that we keep on thinking that, you know, the Splenda is sugar, (laughs) you know? And so, uh, and I think that, um, you know, I think that this stuff is going to be interesting. I think that you have, you know, we're in the early days and I do agree that it it could be a future there. Um, And I think that there's definitely going to be use cases for it. But I think that I would hang on to a camera for as long as they let me, um, because I think that it'll be more, um, in a competitive world of trying to be heard, I think a better camera will do better than an avatar for quite some time. So, um, so I think that uh, I think we want to keep on. I think that I do think that I mean Apple's doing the same thing, and I think Apple's looks weird. <laughs> like you know, like I, I you know, I think, and I think that all of these, it, it really, it takes so little to not look real. Like it's just, it's just like we make these sub micro movements that are us. And, and I think that it's really, really hard to gather all of that data. And and I looked at that one and it still has this little bit of a, you know, um, what I would call dead eye, you know, um, that, that, that occurs, it's much better than everything else, but it's still in, in the dead eye world. Um, and so, um, you know, so I think that's the, that's going to be the challenge, but I do think that we're going to see the technology get a lot better. And we'll talk about this later and go, wow, we didn't think it was going to work and look at it now. But, uh, but it's not quite, I, I still argue, it's not quite there yet. Um, next question.
1: Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman, this time from Phoenix, Arizona, writes in, PSA, if your ATEM is out of warranty, BMD won't fix it at all. Time to get out the soldering iron and Torx bit. Any advice from the panel? Courtney?
3: Uh Yeah, go for it. I repair all of mine, whether they're under warranty or not. Uh, just a note on that power uh, connector on the ATEM minis is it's a 2.5 millimeter internal pin, not 2.1. So don't make that mistake because most, uh, most of those coaxial power connectors that are 5.5 millimeter outside uh, have a 2.1 millimeter pin, but these have 2.5 millimeter pins. So it may not fit if you get the wrong one to replace it. Uh, So bear that in mind, but just go in there, and if it's just broken loose from the motherboard, you can solder it back. Uh, And if you look at where those traces go, you could even run a little jumper wire from the connector over to a solder pad somewhere near for the same, you know, where the plus plus, uh, 12 is and where the ground is, so that if it breaks loose again, the wires keep it connected. So that's my tips. Good, John.
2: Uh, A Weller soldering station, a solder sucker solder wick and a, um, a sponge pad to clean your tip. And, and, and if you don't get that, come to my house and we'll fix it together.
0: <laughs> Very good. And, and, uh, just remember the time matters when soldering. <laughs> if you, if you don't do a lot of it, you can do, you can have it not work just because there's too much heat over a too long of a period of time. So you just want to be uh, fast and accurate. Now, next question.
1: Ian Alford in London writes in which low budget mic arm should i get for using at my desk in zoom calls how do i avoid desk noise going through the arm yeah it's a great
0: question we uh, i i have um Mine is connected to another desk. <laughs> so the way that I don't have any, you know, I can hit all I want here and I don't pick anything up because uh, this arm, this is an Ultima II arm that I have. It's not cost effective. Um, and it is, um, but I have a desk, a work day, a work desk um, next to me that it kind of holds all my cables and other stuff over here. That's why I can grab onto things really quickly when people are talking is usually I have a lot of them sitting on this desk the uh but i keep it connected to a different desk and i've done that for years um it makes it a lot easier to keep it there uh, i would i would recommend an underslung arm as opposed to um an over over arm uh the one that is the most cost effective in my opinion is the elgato uh lp is a is a really good one a good guy
4: yeah that's the one that i'm testing out right now is that elgato it- it's, it's inexpensive. It's not the best. It, it's kind of one of those buy ones, cry ones things. This one, I'm kind of feeling like I'm squeaking by. I mean, I really want one of the, the OC Whites or something expensive, but it, this one does a trick. And as far as translating... Um, uh, you can get a better shock mount. That's one of the things that isolates the microphone, so it's it's suspended in midair, and that way, some of these uh, you know things on your desk don't translate through. I'm not using a shock mount on mine, so mine will, but that's a great tip, Alex. As far as putting it to another desk, I think that might be my next next move. I like it. It works great.
3: Yeah, good, Courtney. Well, Alex and guys. Uh, Suggestions are great if you can afford it. The cheap arms for them is like $125. For me, you know, the cheap arm is the $19 ones or the $20 ones. And what I do to make these work is you see those springs on there. What I do is, and you'll hear the noise when I pull it out, boom, is I take a piece of uh, neoprene foam and I wedge it between uh, between the springs and the arm, and that dampens the springs so it doesn't conduct any sound, any you know, touching the arm or touching the uh, desk that it's on sounds don't uh, then reverberate through the springs in there. And the other, the other thing is, of course, make sure your, your microphone is shock mounted and has a good shock mount, like a, you know, one of these spider type uh, elastic suspensions on it. And that does a great deal to dampen any of the noise that would come down the boom arm itself. Go ahead, Alex.
5: Yeah, having it attached to a separate desk, which is what I do is a good, a good suggestion. If you don't have that option, the other thing you can do if you're going to get something like the Elgato arms is, uh, if you go to Amazon and just do a search for sorbothane isolators, they're fairly inexpensive. You can get these sorbothane, uh, discs and you can slip it underneath the mount where that clamps onto the, the side of the desk. That's one thing you can do. Uh, you could also try putting a high pass filter on your mic, uh, something like 50 or 60 hertz and just roll off that low end. I find that does help uh, minimize uh, a lot of the excessive things. And of course, the other thing you could do is um, start stop uh, bashing your fist or arms on the desk. So there's a little bit of technique involved there too. If you've got questions um, uh, that
0: you'd like to ask, you can go ahead and go to askofficehours.com or use that little QR code that you see there in the corner. Um, and, uh, so that's a real quick and easy way to ask questions without having to go through the login and everything else. If you are inside of Makana, uh, make sure to vote on those questions and let us know and go ahead and throw those questions in both for the first hour and the second hour. We've got BizRT, the team from BizRT, coming on, uh, in the second hour, it should be a great second hour. So do a little research on biz now and, and, uh, the TriCaster now and, and um, ask those questions for the second hour as well as the first hour. Let's go to the next one.
1: Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona writes in, according to the New York Times, the Writers Guild settlement broke new ground on the use of AI that will benefit workers in many sectors. Discuss and he includes the New York Times link.
3: Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't had a chance to read the New York Times because it's behind a paywall. Uh but um the uh what I have heard is that the the AI parts of that contract, uh outlaw use of AI for key positions but it doesn't outlaw it completely so you can use it as still use it as a tool uh, to do some writing you know or to help out your writing or to flesh out an idea but uh, to have it to have the whole whole writer credit go to an AI is verboten now in the new contract.
0: Yeah, I think it, my understanding of it is: is you can still use the, all the writers' work and, writer, and writing from the past to train the AI. The writers can work with the AI, but they're gonna even if they even if AI ran the entire you know wrote the entire script, which won't happen anytime soon. Uh, the writers would still get um, not only credit but paid <laughs> for that for that use. So um, so it does it keeps them in the in the curve, um, but it allows them to use the AI because the, the the problem with not being able to use AI is that there are many things that AI could potentially do better, for instance, uh, AI could, um, you know, if you say, well, say this like JFK or say this like Martin Luther King, a a writer may have a hard time really visualizing exactly how to say that where the AI might give them ways of, you know, Colloquialisms or mannerisms or other things that it might be able to reproduce faster than the writer. So there's a lot of things like that that I think could be um, that that I think are really interesting. Is it'll be interesting to see how the, you know, how the strike and the result of the strike really affect the industry. I think that that's probably a bigger conversation. Um, But I think that the AI thing seemed to make. A lot of sense. Um, I do think that we're probably going to see a pullback. I mean, I think that the for for the below the line that are not part of these that just like to have a lot of work because we don't get anything from the films. I think uh, the golden era has just ended, <laughs> so so we probably will see less production than we had before um, uh, as a, as a result of it. So so we'll um, but we'll see. We'll, the time will tell over the next couple of years. Uh, next question.
1: Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, BC, Canada writes in, I have not seen a firmware update come through ATEM switcher updates in quite a while. I'm not using the USB webcam output. Are people still experiencing the gray issue on Zoom? Go Courtney.
3: I think the gray issue is still back from the ATEM minis. Uh, There was an update uh, that did do a firmware update for the MET. ME2s and ME4s and the constellations, I think, but not the ATEM Minis uh, mini line. Uh, so there's been no firmware change there. The main problem I'm still having is an occasional glitch. It's between the USB output and buffering or synchronization with some USB chipsets in some PCs. So. It's kind of a fleeting, uh, fingers are pointing back and forth between uh, the manufacturers and the software writers and the the people who write the drivers and the buffers uh, situation, so they still haven't resolved that. It's gotten shorter, and by changing your output to uh, 30 frames per second instead of 60 frames, uh, meteorates the problem somewhat, but it still glitches every now and then. Yeah, the, the, uh, I haven't seen a firmware
0: update for quite some time and I do think they need it. Um, I think that there's some things that the, the I, I, I'm assuming that it's going to happen at some point in the future, mostly because we don't think that some of the, the new feature sets are really active in the, you know, so this new thing where you can lock it to 709 or 2020 and I'm not clear that it's actually working. So, um, so I think that that is something for us to um, uh, take a look at. So, so I, 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 I do think that we're probably going to see a firmware update in the next month or two. Next question.
1: Ian Alfred in London writes in, how does false color work? Go ahead, Guy.
4: Yeah, so... We're looking at uh, Nob Omniscope here, and I've got false co- color here on the right side. And Basically, it just helps you judge exposure very quickly. Uh, you can see if things are uh, really overexposed so on the left here. In, in this app, it gives you the, the range. Uh, some people will, will, will take a physical printed one of these and stick it next to their monitor so they can see that red means super hot. Uh, the flesh tone you can see around my face is that uh, kind of um, pinkish color. And then green for green screen is that, that 40. And then uh, it's things that are super dark is that purple purple and that like the speakers behind my head or the purple and the black. And so if I change exposure, like right now I've got my camera control for my uh, Z cam open. So if I change something like ISO and I drop down to 500, uh, so you could see how it dramatically changes. And this just helps you, uh, you know, choose the right exposure so that, or move your lights around. Um, So uh, earlier today, as I was checking into the panel, they were saying, Hey, your, your exposure is a little off, your, your, uh, your blacks are a little milky. And I was like, Hmm, that's interesting. So yeah, I'll do some corrections here, but since I have VMix as my tool, that I can also make some finer adjustments. I can't share that screen right now, but I went in there and I just crushed my blacks a little bit uh, because there's only so much that I can do as far as uh, picture quality in the in the camera. And this is where LUTs and things like that can can really be helpful. Maybe uh, Alex can give us a little more on false color, but that's all I got.
0: False color color is actually a lot. <laughs> it's it's just a really harsh one. So it's just saying at these, at these levels go, you know, push all of this to one color and these levels push all of this to another color. So it, it is actually a lot that just simply is pushing those out. Where I find it to be the most useful is um, dealing in outdoor settings when I'm shooting something and I can't really analyze it and I don't have a scopes connected to it. A lot of times when, when we're shooting indoor, I have scopes almost all the time that are open, but that can be really hard in the field to shoot. And so being able to pop up a false color um in the field on a lot of cameras will provide that. I know a lot of the black magic cameras provide it on the, you know, that you can just have put it on one of the action buttons on the top and then you hit it and you can just see, oh, something is definitely going to get overexposed or something is definitely going to get underexposed. That's where I pay the most attention to it, is looking for things that are going to clip on either end um as they as they go through. And so the, so it's I think I find it most useful in the field when shooting when you don't have all the rigging that you would normally have. Um, that said, I try to you know, the thing that's the most accurate is using like an RGB parade and really understanding what, you know, what's happening because the remember that the that also the false color is a sum. So you can have things that don't look like they're overexposed all the way across, but, but might be in one channel or another. And so being able to see RGB parade and seeing things clipping is the best way to look at it. But it is a great um, way to, I use it all the time when I'm shooting outside. Uh,
1: next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, Alex, you mentioned cameras versus avatars. What would be a solid resource for learning how to shade a camera properly, light a scene, and select the right lens for a specific application?
0: You know, the problem with one source is that it depends. <laughs> you know, so uh, I think that the, I don't know if there's a lot of great sources. I mean, as far as there's a lot of lighting so, lighting individuals and there's some stuff on LinkedIn learning, there's tons of stuff on YouTube about it and everyone's got their own opinions about what that actually looks like. Uh, and I think it depends on what kind of feel you're trying to have and what you're doing there. So it it is, um, I think that there are tons of resources. I would just keep on looking at the ones on, on YouTube. We're hoping to, um, you know, have a small area where we start to do some of these things like interview lighting, green screen lighting, photography lighting, those types of things we're, we're working on right now for the spring um, for office hours. But um, we have to do a move. So <laughs> we're going to do it in our building, but I think our building's going to go away. So, so I think uh, so. We're, we're looking for a new space. Once we have that figured out, we'll sort it out. Go ahead, Courtney.
3: And if you're looking to be, you know, move really up in the ranks, you can look uh, for the ASC master classes if you got some deep pockets, 900 bucks they're virtual so you can do them from at home. So you have a two-day master class coming up October 14th and 15th with two award-winning uh, ASC cinematographers that will teach you all about lighting and cameras and lens selection. Everything you need to know to get up up in level to be a cinematographer.
0: And one of the most important things is to do it. So getting a, a small kit doesn't have to be super expensive, but getting a, a relatively good camera um, and a, a couple lights and and some stuff to start to, and shoot interviews for people or do it for, you know, a, a nonprofit or your local church or whatever, you, whatever you want to um, contribute to. There is nothing that's going, there's no amount of study that's going to replace doing it. And all the study gets way better. After you've done it, because you'll sit there and you'll have real questions from from real challenges that you had in the field. And that's the best way to learn is to do that and then come back to places like this and ask questions um, that are specific. Next question.
1: Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York writes in, Morning everyone. What are the panel's thoughts on the new Raspberry Pi 5? John? I'll let you know I've got
2: I've got four fours uh four no sorry three four hundreds I like the 400 because 'cause it's got the keyboard embedded, and I've got two threes and I'm gonna use it for my pumpkins, but I won't get it in time I don't think maybe uh one are the huge are they, sh- sh- are they uh, shipping yet uh, the october mid october
0: mid-October yeah yep. so they'll be coming out soon uh really excited to see how they how they turn out I think it's it, it looks like a huge jump forward um so uh it'll be really interesting to see I am a little concerned you know given the way I've used mine in the past about it not having an I think it doesn't have a headphone jack is that right it doesn't have an um uh, headphone output that seemed like an odd thing to take out like to me like I was like hmm it's a really interesting thing to, because just there's a lot of easy ways to do that. Now it's become harder, um, and I I thought that that was an odd an odd thing to remove. I'm sure there was a good reason, but Courtney.
3: Yeah, I wonder. They said there's a way to get composite video out of, out of it if you uh, solder something to a header on the board. I wonder if there's the same if there's yeah. the same output for audio analog audio out as well. I wonder if it it appears somewhere on the board that you can pull it out, or if they just keep it in the digital domain the entire time and send it out the
1: HDMI port.
3: Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Next question.
1: Ian Alford in London writes in, what are the main advantages of the Blackmagic iPhone camera app over other camera apps on the iPhone?
5: Alex? Yeah, there's actually quite a few. The the most important one to me is it has a cost of $0, (laughs) which is pretty important, especially uh, for me, for someone that does not have the need to pay. um, I don't use these types of apps enough to warrant paying a subscription fee uh, for apps like Filmic Pro. Um, there's something about filmic Pro's controls and UI that just always have always bugged me. and I just find, found that, The controls on the Blackmagic app just were so straightforward and, you know, I only have an ATEM switcher. It's not like I even have Blackmagic cameras, but the UI does feel consistent, does feel familiar um, and it's an incredibly robust app. So I think if you're wanting to, uh, if you want more control over the camera settings on your phone and you don't necessarily want to pay a subscription fee, you should really look at it. and. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I think you can load LUTs on the on the Blackmagic uh, app, but maybe somebody else can chime in on that.
4: Good guy. Yeah, you can definitely load LUTs. Yeah, free. I, lo- I love the price. I did pay for Filmic Pro. The, the one thing I do miss is the ability to uh, view on another monitor, but you can get around that by doing things like right now, I'm sharing screen over NDI, so I'm running the NDI Capture app, and that's how you could see this screen right now. Otherwise, it would be uh, you know, where you can go into the settings and you can choose if you want uh, clean HDMI out. So you can say uh, here HDMI clean feed, which is what we loved about uh, Filmic Pro, and we're willing to pay good money for it. Now, you do have the, the codecs that are all the way up to 444, Four, which would just eat through a ton of space on, on your uh, device. So there is that option, though. That, that's when you ask, asked, what's the, what's the big deal? It's the codex and then also this fine control. So you can go up here and you can choose your shutter. I know while well, this is coming across, but I'm dropping down to 148. You could change um, your uh, frames per second. You could change the lens. So if you're on the phone, you'll have, you know, multiple different. So I, I'm just running this on an iPad mini for testing. Uh, so this only has the front camera and the 28 millimeter. Otherwise, it'd have more. And then you have things like the ability to send to Blackmagic Cloud, which is the big deal. Uh, Filmic Pro does have integration with Frame.io, so that is for for those that want to do that. And you also have chat. So if you're if you're uh, connected with with an editor and you're uploading this stuff to the cloud, you can chat with people. And then you got VU meters and you got this this nice histogram and the ability to to touch and focus and yeah, there's, oh yeah, and then all the guides. So if you want, uh, you know, to turn on the classic uh, uh, real thirds, you can uh, have that grid up. Uh, there's different, uh, here's the ability to, to view LUTs. I don't know if, you, if that's coming across, but you load LUTs over here in the settings, which are here. So, and then you can display the LUT and here's where you load the LUT. So that's all the, uh, the reasons to use that.
0: Yeah, I think that um, in addition to being free and having a really robust interface coming right out of the gate, I mean it, that's the that's the thing that's kind of amazing is that because they've been doing because Black Magic's been doing this for a long time with their own cameras, the interface was feels very much like a Black Magic camera just for the iPhone. Uh, I have a feeling that they also just I think when we look at it going forward, they have an enormous amount of resources to spend on this, and I think that they're going to. I think this is not just a little fun little app. It is really getting people used to that that process and have really creating the phone as a um, delivery mechanism for the rest of the Blackmagic ecosystem, uh, whether it's on the cloud. Uh, you know, so imagine, you know, because it's connected to the, to the Blackmagic cloud and you can have things in Resolve, if you're covering an event, if we get outside of filmmaking or maybe even filmmaking, but if you're covering that event, um, you, you have an enormous amount of power to be able to pull that... Um, that information back in in real time while you're covering that and someone can be cutting it and sending it out to broadcast. I and mean, There's a lot of those things that are, that are going to become very, very useful. Go ahead, Alex.
5: Yeah, and I, I don't think it can be... Um, as far as the user interface is concerned on Blackmagic products, uh, as someone who's not fully entrenched in the ecosystem, I have to say it is an absolutely brilliant market marketing move to put this out there as a free app. Um, you know, I've got an E10 mini switcher, but Now that I'm used to it and now that I've started using the Blackmagic camera app on the iPhone, it actually makes me want to spend more money and buy more Blackmagic products. And I think that's just an absolutely brilliant move on their part. Yeah, I I think it'll be interesting to
0: see. I mean, definitely, I don't have, you know, I, I don't have any information here, but but I think it'd be interesting to see if Apple, uh, not Apple, but Blackmagic starts to think about putting the switcher systems in the cloud. Um, you know, because if, the, if you had that, you'd be able to have these cameras and other cameras and everything else feeding all that information into a switching system in the cloud. And people are able to cut it the way we cut this show, but all in the Blackmagic cloud there. I think that could be a really interesting puzzle piece. And if they do that, well, and and they charge the way that Blackmagic charges for things. <laughs> it could nuke the whole the whole industry. <laughs> so 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 I think that we may be seeing them building up that that pipeline. I have no idea whether they'll do that or not. But I think that when I look out forward, I it feels like that's where they could go if they wanted to, and that would be pretty much the end of a lot of things. In the at least in the consumer prosumer. I mean, we're going to be talking to VizRT and so on and so forth in a couple minutes. That's an entirely different ball of wax that isn't isn't really affected by what we're talking about here. But the rest of it, the VMix is in the cloud and the OBS is in the cloud and all those things become hard to manage if if black magic decides that's an area that they wanna Inter- interact with, especially with all these cameras coming out with IP connections. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see how that, how that ties together. A quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first hour and into the second hour. Uh, you can use this uh, at askofficehours.com, uh, or, or you can just do it inside of Makana. Make sure to vote on those questions so we know which, what order you'd like us to answer them in. Next question.
1: Mattia Sutila in Helsinki, Finland writes in, in OBS, ATEM shows more contrasty when connected through USB than, for example, CamLink 4K. Why is that, and is there a way to correct the USB output? i go ahead, Alex. It's
5: been a while since I've used OBS. There's a couple of things. First of all, as far as OBS is concerned, uh, when you connect a USB camera, I think it defaults, if you go into your your properties uh, it defaults to partial not full color so you'll want to make sure you set that to full to get the most out of it the other thing is there's a big difference between the uvc output of the atem and something like the cam link the cam link uh is uncompressed video as far as i'm concerned which is why i'm actually not using the uvc output on the atem is i actually don't really like it so i'm using a roland uvc capture card that does fully uncompressed into the computer so i don't think there's a whole lot you can do there it's not going to be as good as some other uh, you know HDMI to USB encoders. Uh, you may be able to get around with some of the the crushed black issue, which I know was always a bit of an issue uh, because of the way it goes into the computer. Um, you can color correct that slightly, but I mean the image quality is not going to be as good as an AJA capture card, for example. Good guy.
4: Yeah, this is why you pay the the big bucks for the the, the good names. Uh, I ran a test. I, I I put eight so right here on my desk I have an eight out HDMI. So I fed one signal in and eight out, and I tested about six different capture devices, and I was shocked at how different they were. The $19 cheap ones that you can can get, they fared pretty well, but then you started to see when you put it under scopes as to why they're so cheap. I mean, you're just throwing away a bunch of color. So if you really want your color to pop, uh, that Roland that Alexander uh, is using, that's the one that, run, that won the test. It was dead, dead, completely perfect. So some of the manufacturers that you would think that are good, I don't want to start calling people out, but there's some not so good ones that you would think that were good. So they're all different. Next question.
1: Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia writes in, I need to add another monitor to my setup but have limited space. Reconfigured setup or try to find a small monitor with a stand? Good Jason. So a couple days ago on office hours, we talked about the Orion app for iPad. And Tony, I know you've got a, a handful of of iOS devices. If you have an iPad that is relatively new, there's an app called Orion, and um, you know a tiny little USB C capture card that I twenty bucks or so on Amazon. I've played around with this, and um, it's it's a decent solution. It's it's again, don't go for color accuracy, don't go for speed. It is compressing and then uncompressing and it's got this weird VHS thing but pretty good. Courtney? Um...
3: Yeah. Uh, another thing to look at is maybe these portable monitors. They they don't have really great color in them, but uh, just for viewing stuff, they're thin, they're lightweight. You can mount them uh, with some uh, command strips to a, a VESA mount and uh, stick them on a, a small arm. That's what I'm using for a second monitor. So that's always a good choice. They're fairly cheap, 100, 100 and a half bucks. And uh, I have two or three, I mean, I have two or three of them. I have two out here right now that I'm using. So yeah.
0: And I use, I, every monitor I put is on an arm and it's on, I have these Huanu arms that I use that are about 85 bucks and I, they, they work pretty well. And I've got like three of them, I think for all the monitors here, um, and my 24. Um, so, so I, uh, but I find that I just start that way. <laughs> like I, I never put the monitor on the ground that way. I can always keep moving them around and find the place that makes the most sense. Uh, next question.
1: Beau Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina writes: "And a few weeks ago, I saw a Canon rep use makeup foundation to remove grease spots and polish an expensive broadcast lens. Is this tip common knowledge?" They put
0: makeup foundation on the actual lens. That's crazy like uh, <laughs> wow i don't i don't know i mean i don't know if that's common knowledge i don't even think it's a good idea like i uh, maybe uh, maybe it could work i mean technically the foundation should be not as hard as the the glass or the but it feels like with the filters on the front and everything else i would not there's no world where i would do that to an expensive lens i mean like it, unless i i mean i don't i don't know i mean that seems. I, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding the question, but if it's actually pol- taking the grease pots off of a lens itself, uh, I think that there are. Uh, I don't know if I'd put foundation on it. That sounds. I mean, maybe it works. I mean, there are, there are other things people do that are crazy. Like I like w- when I learned that you could remove a sharpie from a a whiteboard by using the sharpie itself. But you know, by scribbling. It. So if you have a sharpie mark. You just scribble over top of the Sharpie mark, and then you can wipe it right off. And so, um, when I learned that, or if you use the if you use the, um, uh, the the markers that are supposed to go with it, you can also go over the Sharpie marks and then wipe them off. So, I, I'm willing. That sounds crazy enough that I'm willing to suspend disbelief. But the idea of putting makeup foundation on the front of my lens seems like I would be scared to do that. Now, go ahead,
3: Courtney. Yeah, because I think makeup foundation has a talc, a very fine talc in it, which is an abrasive. And so that's going to actually wear through any coatings that are on that lens, anti-reflective coatings, whatever is going to cut through that stuff pretty fast. So I would not do that unless it's a plastic lens. You might be able to polish it up with some very fine grit uh, like makeup or toothpaste. Uh, But uh, other than that, I would not use it on a glass lens or any kind of coated
0: lens. And just because we think it works, you know, like we we thought the talc was safe and it turns out it's cancer causing. <laughs> so, so like note that too. Next question.
1: Uh, Paul Buchanan, Columbus, Ohio writes in, not a question, but I noticed the that AWS Media Live added audio meters LKFS to the web interfaces preview. That will be very helpful to have it inline to help monitor and troubleshoot.
0: Yeah, it's really powerful to have that. I think they just added that to it recently. Uh, We wish that they would look at what Blackmagic does with the web presenter and put that all into AWS. (laughs) And a lot of us have asked for that for years um because the 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 web presenter has such a great interface and gives you a lot of telemetry i really feel like um amazon really should be putting telemetry into media live um because we need to be able to see what's going on like you know i got a signal coming in being able to have that telemetry there and a lot of the especially if the encoder will support it it seems like it would make a lot of sense uh next question
1: uh Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas writes: "In Blackmagic is not fixing the web presenter 4K high bit rate streaming issue. If we call BMD support and register complaints, perhaps it will help raise the profile of this issue and get it fixed." Uh, you'd have to tell us what
0: the issue is. <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't know what the issue is. That you'd, you'd have to be more specific about the the actual issue that we're that we're talking about. But maybe you can send us something more detailed, and we'll we'll talk about that. Um, next question.
1: Tony Liazzi in Seaford writes in, I would like Zoom to give notification that someone is joined from the browser instead of the app when we let them in the room. It
0: should, if they register, like if they're just joining without that, it wouldn't, I don't think it would know how to do that, but I think that it, it should, if it, if they're a registered participant in the room, it should tell you that they're joining. Um, but I have to admit that we do everything we possibly can to keep people from joining on the web. So, um, you know, we will, uh, talk to them ahead of time, work through that. Uh, the web app, in my opinion, is just a disaster. Um, and so, um, you know, the web the web solution on all of these, not just Zoom, but they're all disastrous. And so I get that you might have some people who are unwilling to install an app or they can't because of security, um, but I would do everything I could before I tried to figure this out. i do everything I could to to do that. Now, I will also say that uh, I tend to be there before they get there. <laughs> like, I don't know. The way I have this set up is... I put everybody, I want to make it as easy for people to join as possible. So I put them all in a waiting room and then I bring people in. So I'm, I'm always there. And I, if I'm setting up the meeting, generally I'm always there a minute or two before and I bring people in and that way they can have the shortest URL. They don't have to have the password or they don't have to log into um, Zoom or anything else. They have this nice short URL, um, but you have to do one of those things. And so I, I keep it short and easy for them to jump in and then I bring them in manually. Go ahead, John.
2: I would pronounce Tony's last name
1: Louis Luzi. Next question.: Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada submits with a QR code an old friend of mine is putting his old band from the '90s back together, and against my suggestion, wants to find a good eight-channel analog mixer between three and eight hundred dollar range. Any suggestions for this crazy analog adventure?: Alex. Yeah. If you're going to go with an analog
5: mixer, there's two links that I'm sharing here uh, in the chat here made by Yorkville. The 8-channel board is the PGM-8, and if you need more than six mic inputs, you can step up to the VGM-14. Full disclosure, I I work for the company that manufactures these. They're made in Canada. They are made out of a really sturdy steel chassis, and we rent them out all the time, and they're pretty bulletproof. Which means that, you know, they're, I'm sure that that's very, they're very nice.
0: Very nice mixers. And they, if there's something goes wrong, it's probably like a little
3: display that says, sorry about that. It just ahead, apologizes. <laughs> uh, it goes into the uh, sound. <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> about that. Me. I know that it's LED. not great. <laughs> it can't do other things. It's just a little light underneath a little thing that just says,
0: sorry about that. Sorry. Go ahead, Courtney.
3: Yeah, but if you want that, uh, you know, that garage band sound from the 90s, you know, these Soundcraft, they're still available. These EX-12, now these do have a digital uh, effects processor in the output, but I think they're all analog internally. Uh, effects are Mackie, Mackie 1202s or, I mean, 1404 or something like that. From that period of time are still available, and most of those are all analog. They may have USB out if you want to run it into a uh, a workstation, but they also have analog out that bypass the A to D
0: conversion. And if he gives up on that, the XR eighteen is in that in that price range, and it'll sound a lot better.
1: Um, next question: John Richardson of the Village of New York, Florida writes, "In the last box to check for Black Magic would be NDI. What is their reasoning for not touching NDI,
4: Guy?" Yeah, a couple of reasons. Uh, The biggest one's a licensing issue. There is a fee for that to use that license. The other one is they don't want to be strong-armed at any point. So uh, controlling that ecosystem may be one of VizRT's new... uh, strategies where they've spun off NDI, so NDI is not its own—it's its own entity now. So hopefully they just make it like open source and just give it give it away, and I think that's when Black Magic would jump in. But right now I don't think they're going to touch it with a ten-foot pole, just because they don't want to pay the licenses and they don't want to be stuck and beholden to somebody else's rules. Even though everybody else is adopting it, they just—they like their playground, and uh, they're going to keep they're the biggest kid in the, in the playground so they can do what they want. Next question.
1: Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina writes in, has anyone, uh, has anyone used the any tool.io devices for network diagnostics and troubleshooting?
0: Uh, I haven't used it, but this looks amazing.
1: <laughs> so
2: I'm, gonna,
0: I'm buying one right now. Ask us in a week. Cause I think our, all of our, 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 um, wallets caught fire when we saw this. I mean, this just looks like such a more modern version of what we've been using. And it's been really hard to find one that is supported on um, iOS. So if it's so it's pretty cool. Uh, we're definitely gonna check that out. Thank you for the tip. Next question.
1: Narcissi Byface writes in, I always face issues with connectivity when I do an event outside between Peplink and LiveView, which one will work better in the field? LiveView like <laughs> the live you will.
0: Um, and uh, the, the peplink, we've had a lot of trouble with, um, you know, and unless you really spend a lot of time on it. We've definitely gotten it to work, but it takes a lot of networking to to get it to, you know, if you're an expert at it, it, it definitely has a bunch of features that you won't find in the live. You just, the amount of control you have, what you can put together if you're using some of the larger peplinks. But if you're looking at like an LU 600 or LU 800, well, we we're using, uh, we, I used to have two LU 600s. Onio has an LU 600. We use an LU 800 for the event coverage. Um, and those are as rock solid as you're going to get, um, in this kind of environment. So I would highly recommend looking at the larger live views with more modems. Um, they're definitely going to be more
1: reliable outside, um, but they are more expensive. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, writes in Blackmagic Web Presenter 4K RTMP streaming to YouTube, the buffer gets filled. Research indicates it's a TCP protocol issue, not recovering from lost packets, making it unreliable and prone to buffer filling and ceasing to stream eventually. Um you know, that's oftentimes an RTMP problem.
0: Like it's, it's something that's common to an RTMP problem. So I think that this also might be why they're looking at SRT. So we've, we've had this problem in the past. Um, the RTMP once they get stuff back. And if it doesn't get that stuff back fast enough, it stops encoding. And as you go to a higher resolution, it becomes more sensitive to that. <laughs> so, so, you, uh, uh, so I think this is an RTMP problem. I think that as they move to uh, SRT, I think you'll see less problems in this area. Go ahead, John.
2: Doug Johnson has a long video that he did on testing specifically this this unit, and it's really good. It's about 20 minutes long. Yeah, um, but I think that, that – that, did,
0: did he come up with a similar solution or did he have other – Yeah, uh, but he
2: did this a while ago when the, when the 4K just first came out. He tested it, and, it, and he ran into this issue.
0: Yeah, RTMP is not great for delivery um, of, of uh, 4K. Uh, next question.
1: Um, Narcissi Biface, I believe this is a duplicate. I always face an issue with streaming Alex. at a end of the field due to internet instability. Next. Next one. Douglas Carmichael writes in What macOS compatible mastering plugin would you recommend that would be equivalent to isotope ozone? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, we could do a whole second
5: hour on this kind of stuff, but real quick, I would get yourself a linear phase EQ and a linear phase multiband compressor. Waze has good solutions for that. I would also look at FabFilter as well, to name a few.
0: Uh, Quick reminder that the weekend is usually a little bit more relaxed. Um, We've got, uh, we will be, um, Saturday, of course, is our test area. So we're doing 4K HDR 5.1 tests uh, for the Saturday session. So it'll mostly look like... um, (laughs) Q&A, <laughs> but you might see our colors changing and you may hear some channels moving around. So our Saturday session, always remember, is a test session. We're getting ready to move to 4K HDR 5.1 and so Saturdays are us doing the R&D to make sure that our subsystems are ready for that. So, uh, but definitely come, we're still answering questions uh, that just may be in different colors <laughs> as, as we go through that process. Um, we uh, And Sunday, of course, is introspection. So if you've got, uh, you know, uh, concerns, complaints, questions, uh, suggestions, all those things for Office hours. Hours. that's usually a little bit more of an open forum so you can go ahead and and jump into into the, the Sunday session to ask us those questions you can still do technical as well but that's what's available uh, for Sunday so hopefully you'll join us it's one of my favorite days to hang out with everybody let's go ahead and jump into the second hour Welcome back to the second hour. really excited to have the team from VizRT here today. Uh, John Riddell uh, is um, the global lead for cloud live production for VizRT and a highly experienced technical director and tech ops manager with over 15 years of expertise in the broadcast industry. Uh, Michael Lang is uh, a live sports technical director with over 13 years of experience in the the broadcast industry. Um, He's also the owner of Lang Productions, providing virtual control rooms in the cloud. And Jeff Keithley, of course, we all know this is part of our group from pizzazz uh and he is the chief problem solver uh, 20 plus years uh, of a new tech uh, uh user of new tech and now BizRT products including uh championing the uh cloud movement since the beginning he's he um his head has been in the cloud for 10 years <laughs> so anyway so we're really glad to have all of you here um, and uh, you know it, I think IBC was a big uh, a big move we made the announcement uh, of the um, that new tech is now officially VizRT. can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that and what that actually means
6: yeah Alex thanks you and for everybody else you know thanks for joining I'm really happy to be on here and talk to you guys um, IBC was a, a really big show for for VizRT group. Um, and yes, right before ABC, we made a a, a big announcement that you know the NewTek brand is is finishing its final transition into Vizrt Group. Whereas the last uh, three years, Viz, uh, Vizrt and NewTek have really been operating as one company, but two separate logos. And uh, you know, we we internally uh, decided to run this company as one single logo. So that's as you could see in the the press releases and the marketing uh, where one comes from um i think the important part to touch on that is that as far as the new tech portfolio products you know people behind it um nothing is changing the partner network is still there r&d still based out of san antonio products still coming out um this is all just people's uh, logo on their business cards and, and at the end of their email addresses of a change. So the, so the
0: TriCaster is still the same TriCaster or will continue to evolve. Is there anything, anything that you see that from the VizRT technology that might affect the TriCaster as it, as you move
6: forward? Yeah. So the TriCaster is, you know, a a huge, you know, powerhouse of the, of the company. Um, It's a, building block of of what VizRT has um along alongside NDI. Um, the TriCaster is going to move inside the portfolio as a product line. So think of TriCaster now as a production switcher. Um, it is a production switcher with a series of different um tiers of resources. So you have um three main pillars. You have on-prem, um the when you say the word tricaster you think of that physical box um with its IO and uh you know a lot of people here viewers know it um and inside of that that hardware will be different resources different um level um different box frame right up from the mini to um a tricaster 1 pro or a tc2 elite uh the second pillar would be uh where VizRT is really um pushing the space is in cloud. Um and when we say cloud, that uh really angles and uh pushes towards Vector um or uh VizNow, um our deployment tool, where you take the software and deploy it into your own um personally hosted public-private cloud. Can can you break down for us the
0: difference between you have TC now, you have VizNow and you have Vector? Yep. And and how do those how do those cover the the different verticals that are out okay, there?
4: Okay, yep.
6: So so verticals in hardware are you know the physical boxes you know Tricaster uh, Two Elite and TC One Pro, um, Viznow or Vector. I should start by saying Vector is the production switcher software, and it is able to be deployed in your personal uh, or private cloud. Um, Viznow, in that same vein. Um, is a deployment service. So, with our customers, um, a lot of them are not, you know, uh, cloud engineers and architects. They they want to use cloud. They see the benefits of it, but they're still learning. And uh, a part of that also is um, being able to deploy easily um, and quickly. So, VizNow is just a production tool to deploy our our software tools. So, so VizNow
0: is deploying Vector into the cloud. Is that exactly? Right. And exactly. Can, so can that be a, a local cloud as or you know, or, a, or the, or, you know, the AWS cloud or.
6: So right now the, so right now we go by with the market is telling us to do. Um, and that is, it's in public cloud in AWS, because I would say that out, out of all of our customers, there's probably 95% are in AWS. Yeah. Um, we do have plans. Um, and roadmaps to then also deploy in Azure and GCP. We want to be cloud agnostic. We don't you know, necessarily care. Um, and then, if private cloud uh, becomes that loud of a voice, we can do. We could change those ter- um, the the deployment structure to deploying in in a, a private, you know, the private se- sector. Um, do, do you but see- nothing stopping. Nothing stopping customers from deploying a vector or our software tools in a private cloud today. Right.
0: They just have to know how to do it. <laughs> exactly. So the, the, um, and, and the, uh, so we have TriCaster and what really separates TriCaster from vector. So people are looking at, they can put, they can, you know, have those running and, and how to, how do you separate those for, for our listeners? I, I, I've
6: used yep. both. So I'm, I'm clear yeah. of it, but, but if you can explain it to our, 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 uh, our uh, viewers. So I would, how I w- how I think this needs to be understood is that TriCaster needs to be associated with a product line, a full product line. Mm-hmm. So you have a TriCaster product line that ranges from on-prem physical hardware with IO to TriCaster Vector, which is the same production switcher, but software only in cloud. So that's, and so that
0: basically you have all the same software that you had before. It looks the same. It works the same. It does everything else the same, but it's in the cloud instead of on a box
6: there's some small nuances just because of we take advantage of cloud in this way or that way. And then obviously on prem with the different models of physical hardware, you're, you're limited by, you know, IO, if it takes right. HDMI or, you know, those well, kinds I was going to
0: ask you, like, so, you know, the TriCaster um, has a certain number of inputs. What are the, what yes. are the limits once you get into the cloud? Is, is there a Got limit it. to the number of, the number of inputs?
6: Right. So with vector and with cloud, uh, and I would say probably the, two or three real only defining um separating features between TC2 Elite and a Vector um are inputs. So TC2 Elite's inputs are max out at 32. Vector uh tops at 44. I think that um number uh with cloud and being able to do th- different stuff that we can um uh, building out instances that number can can turn on I think at the time we just settled on 44. But uh And then there's some uh, other smaller features inside of Vector. Um, It can do, uh, it it generates some program cleans and program out uh, internal sources uh, without using a a mix output. Um, And then we have um, a new special feature that I can talk about in a little bit um, where we take the NDI um, quality and we actually increase it. Um, And that's an exclusive Vector feature because of cloud and the bandwidth network that we are running in um, up in, in public cloud right now.
0: When 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 VizRT um, bought new how important was NDI as part of that calculation?
6: I think it's uh it was a huge um, part of the the purchase. I mean my background is of a technical director, you know, customer user, right? So watching this back in you know transpire in 2017 2018 you know i think to start maybe it was january 2019 where it became official um you know as a user i'm like well why, why would they do this it's like oh well makes sense you know why not own the ip of of ndi right so um it's a huge uh value to the company um both pieces are um and i would like to say that like you know being now on the vendor side internally um it's great to see um how important ndi is so the company, as well, um, now, because of the, you know, I don't want to call it a merger, but new tech kind of moving together, um, the company runs in in three separate uh, pillars. There's, you know, the key accounts, you know, the traditional visitor T direct to direct to customer. Then there's the vertical of the partner channel, you know, your you have your resellers, your JBAs, your key code medias, you know, all of those, um, the traditional um channel um business model. And then a, a completely separate vertical is the NDI team. And that line wasn't there in the past. Um, but in order for NDI to grow, it needed to happen. So NDI having Um, its own management team, R&D, marketing, you know, business model, they can now operate um, agnostically amongst vendors and promote the technology and the growth of the technology in a way that it couldn't before. Um, And we've seen a tremendous growth in, in that in the last year and a half.
0: Now... Obviously, VizR, uh, VizRT, you know, has a, a deep DNA inside of graphics production. Do you see the uh, the graphics engines that VizRT, has, has any of that affected what's available in TriCaster, or do you see it affecting that in the future?
6: Um, I think that the integrations and just the, if you look at VizRT's portfolio, they have a, a piece kind of any everywhere. Um, you know, we have a, a production switcher, we have a graphics machine, we have, you know, uh, the you know AR and XR we have you know HTML five the acquisition of uh you know Flowix last year around this time um, there are you know there are things that we've done like um, in Vector in the cloud as an example you could run uh, an embedded viz engine in the background of a vector and then then all you need is a control layer to send those graphics but then you have a render pipeline right. um, directly into into the switcher. So those are small integrations, but then I could, I see, um, in the future, uh, other tight integrations, you know, the, the, the quick ones could be integrations with Flowix, but then, you know, talking about, you know, AI technology or AR and, and syncing those into the product as well. Yeah.
0: You know, we're going to open this up to our, our panelists and then to our questions soon. Do you, is just, I think there's a couple things you'd like to show us. And you were talking a little bit about the NDI improvement.
6: Yeah, yeah, Um, so what I want to show you guys today, I'm going to try and make this screen share work. So a lot of people, so we can show it off, is um, VizNow, it's that deployment service we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So I have this running in our AWS um, account, Um, and this is sort of the splash page for uh, VizNow. This gives users... um, Administrator access to the account. Um, your admin team, can you guys see the screen?
0: Uh, we're seeing white right now, but um, we saw it.
6: Uh, yeah,
0: we'll see what's right happening here. I see that there. Yep. We want to make sure we see that before I start mm-hmm.
6: talking. We're good.
0: I see. Uh, we see the squares right now. Yeah, you can see awesome. it up here. In, you can see it up here in the program if
6: you if you look at it, you'll see what we're seeing. Got right there. it. Okay. All right, good. I see the program monitor now. Okay, so this is the main dash for for VizNow. So um, in here, you could see uh, these different boxes. Uh, these are control rooms. Um, this is all deployed uh, separate VPCs inside of your AWS account. Um, I'll get to into um, a control room in a second, but I just want to briefly uh, browse the top... Co- Corner here. So, up here in core, this is our license server. So, we stash all the license server structure here. Um, this allows you to load all your Viz, VizRT licensing um, into this machine. And then those licenses talk across all of your different VPCs. So, that allows you to share licensing across multiple machines. So, you could have, um, you know, four different control rooms that are built, but only purchase two vector licenses because you're only ever on air or in need of two simultaneous licenses. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um, and this is something that, you know, this is pure um, feedback from our users and and broadcast partners. They were, they're looking at ways to scale their productions and utilize cloud. One of the, the main things in that is licensing, right? How can we turn on and turn off instances when we need it? But, you know, I may need to build 10 different control rooms because of different configurations or whatever it is, but I only need, you know, I'm only ever on air with three simultaneous shows. So um, that's where the, where licensing stays and lives and then um, users. So inside of an organization is great. Um, You can grant access um, to users in the space and then uh, give them access um, to either build and destroy um, workspaces. Um, only build um, workspaces or just be an operator. Um, so as an example, um, in the show, on the show today, uh, Jeff Keithley, a uh, longtime new tech VizRT user, um, he has an operator tag that is that allows him to access um, just a workspace. Um, but he's not able to destroy it he's not able to to you know it doesn't have the admin privileges that, um and the security groups to to do anything um other than the one function um as an operator right um and then on under organization this is where we have um different things where we can uh set a workspace to deploy in a specific region um this one um specifically today is in northern virginia uh, but we can Deploy in multiple regions. Um, if there's not a region uh, listed, it's because we just haven't deployed there, and we really just have to initialize that um, that deployment. And that list will grow as we get um, more and more people on the Viznow uh, deployment tool. Um, you can um, set set uh, ranges of IPs and subnets here, um, but this is really just uh, some some simple, straightforward. Uh, and those organizational
0: and in, in, in there, it's showing you what what your uh, latency is to those different uh, verticals. Is that is that what right. the milliseconds are there?
6: Yep, absolutely. I don't think actually I'm at one, uh, 173 right right now. I'm in uh, northeast Ohio. Um, I'm decently close to northern Virginia, and I I pretty I have a pretty good ping time. But uh, right. yeah, I don't know. Let's see, there we go. Yeah, I see. Yeah, 39. There we go. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm, I'm usually around a, a frame a latency. Um, If not better, but okay. So, and then we could get back into just the spaces. So, um, just to give a you know quick quick bike ride through this. So, we could create a new space. We have um, some templates with all the different um, software that can be deployed. Um, And just to give an example of this, uh, a user can come in, uh, say, "Hey, I want to build this this VPC. I'm going to do content contribution, maybe with NDI Bridge, or maybe not." Um, you know, you'll use an NDI discovery server. We have a, a trio and an engine ready to go, and a Vector Plus. Um, you could come in here and set your volume drives with how you want it. And and what I'm doing right now doesn't—it's not like a best practice or anything. I just want to show you guys the interface. But um, you know, we have a couple different uh, versions of uh, instance sizes that we can select from. Um, it's important to note that. You know, Vector Plus specifically, um, it could run on a G4 or a G5 family. Um, You don't. There's not really a performance benefit. The reason we we deployed on a G5 is not for a performance benefit. It was for an availability benefit. Um, A lot of our customers talked about G4s not being available and having those resource issues. So we said, well, why don't we just deploy on G5 as well? Like maybe the G5s aren't widely available in every region, um, but at least it gives the user an option to deploy on a different instance size. And the G um, and the
0: G5 is a little bigger, a little more expensive.
6: Yeah, but it, I think um, I can't speak for every single region, but I think the difference in the Virginia region is literally twenty five cents, maybe fifty cents on a list price. Right, right. Um, you know, we're not we're not talking. Um, you know, d- multiple dollars, but no, um, it makes it more available to the, right.
0: you know, just because there's people looking for the best price. And so there's a lot Absolutely. of people that are in that vertical. Yeah. Yeah. That
6: makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and then we can, we can run on something as simple as a, two X large four X large. Um, I've quite honestly never needed to run on an eight X large, but it's there if you need to. Um, and for, for, and our, then, for our viewers, uh, what are the differences between those, those sizes? Just pure, uh, uh, CPU core count uh, mm-hmm. processing. Um, it it all it runs all the same uh, GPU. It's a, a Tesla uh, T4 uh, mm-hmm. GPU, but um, it, it's just pure c- CPU power. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so in this example, you know, you kind of you add like what I want to deploy on. You, you save that um, action, and then you go through and you would do the same for you know your engine, your bridge, whatnot, and then you hit deploy. Um, VizNow will then take our AMIs, create a VPC inside of your account and build that control room. And you're building Um, this,
0: you're building this in what this is doing is it's, it's building inside of your AWS account. So you're still accountable for the, all the CPU usage, bandwidth usage, so on and so forth. So this is an app that sits inside of that. You're not taking that over for the user. The user still is accountable to AWS. You're simply building the tools that allow you to automate that front end process.
6: Absolutely, absolutely. We're just trying to help the build, the building of the uh, configuration of the VPC for yep. you. Make that easier for the user. It's 100% all managed and all done inside of your account. Yeah. Um. So the deployment um time takes about 15 minutes. Um. And that doesn't um, that doesn't. Elapse with every single instance, or every every single software you add. It's it's in total. Um, it doesn't matter if your control room has uh, just a vector and a discovery server, or vector three play trio. Right. You know, it, it doesn't matter how big. Um, the the time limit or the time takes is you know about fifteen minutes. There's other options as well. Um, kind of think about this as an a la carte style thing you could come in here in this feature and say hey well i need a replay machine or i need a, a couple empty windows machines um right. you know i could do that and add add an empty windows machine um we just made a couple very simple uh and and are you paying how are you how's the what's the pricing structure
0: is it per instance per like what's what are the how's that work
6: so the great thing about viz now is it's 100 percent free um VizNow is just the deployment for our tools. So you would need to have a license for one of our Viz tools to then get access to VizNow. Right. Right? Nice. And then at that point you're able to to build and deploy your your tools that you want. Makes sense. Um, so we have some empty Windows instances like I said, we have some with and without GPUs because there's, you know, obvious um, desires to 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 do different things with them. Um, you know, same thing. Set, setting setting hard drive sizes and whatnot, um, and then this also allows you to, uh, you know, do stuff like naming the the different instances. You know, one of the cool things that I've done is, you know, make kind of like an engineering station for the 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 tech uh, that's involved on the show. Um, so that way, he's not rooting into um, the different instances and in the background of things. Uh, it's, it's been received. Quite well. Um, also, when we've deployed everything, everything in the background is uh, deployed with NDI. Uh, you know, now uh, most most recently five point six, um, and we'll keep we'll keep up with all of those uh, updates as they come. Um, and then, just to finish off, once that workspace would get deployed, then it would show up here as a space. So. Um, I could come into my control room. This is where I could, you know, name it what I want. I named it Cloud City, you know, as a as a Star Wars fan for the reference. Um, but then you could see, you know, this is a control room that I have deployed. Um, I can. Um, one of the nice things about VisNow is um, if it's just uh, a TD needing to come in and build, I could just turn on on Vector. Or if it is show day and I'm the engineer, it's one button and all the instances in that VPC could be turned on right so you have flexibility in that and and that's what we've seen from our uh customers where uh you know a tech ops manager may say well I don't want to turn on everything if I'm only using if I only need to touch you know the replay device right so uh, we made those handles for that um User experience, Um, I think this is where Jeff can, and Michael can chime in a a little bit as well, but uh, we give the option to download a nice DCV file, um, which is a small um, software program to KVM into the cloud instance, or you can open it inside of your web browser. And that's how the user gains access. So as an example here, uh, Jeff has, an IP address where he has access, you know, same as Michael, um and this is where from an admin side, engineering side I can add add users, you know, re- revoke user access, you know, that's the kind of the um the operation side of things of uh, you know with your crew. Um and disabling the security groups with that
0: and one thing I noticed there is that you have um, things that aren't part of of your system that are available to you. So and so you're building that in for the Telos, the NixBus, those types right. of things are all all um, those are external partners, right?
6: Right. Yeah, we've tried to partner with a few people. Um, initially when this project started, um, probably a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago. Um, so we partnered with Harrison, which I think has been acquired since then. Um, you know partnering with Telos um and talking with other some other vendors to to partner with them because uh a customer has wanted to you know I don't want to say a full turnkey solution but they've wanted some flexibility of hey I do need an external um audio mixer or I do need uh comms and I need to integrate those those comms with a, yep. a mix minus back down to you know talent or something like that so things that uh I would say are not, vis you know uh bread and butter or yep. not their expertise yep no that
0: totally makes sense it's it's it's, it's a I, I definitely see it as a feature there um yep. anything else you'd like to show before we start are we it up for questions
6: no i That's think great. questions are gonna spark the conversation i think the um the intro to this uh was good and i'm i'm happy to yep. to talk and uh, answer more good john
2: So, uh, I'm wondering, which OSs do you guys support in the cloud on your applications?
6: So, Viz's applications are all uh, Windows. No. Um, (laughs) Oh, I I know that. um, I do. I know. I know because it's uh, we're dealing with you know AMIs and Docker's that uh, we're working with some vendors that have uh, things running on you know Linux or Ubuntu, um, but our specific. Software tools are all Windows based,
0: and then and then would you be? Um, then of course they can put those on other instances, and then be piping that data back and forth to your system within the cloud as well. So it doesn't. It, you still could have things that aren't
6: necessarily on Windows, um, right? And and it's also to be clear too is what Viznow does is just builds the VPC, mm-hmm. right? In the background, if you're you know cloud savvy um, like Michael and Jeff, you can go into your AWS console and you could deploy something else in that VPC range, right? Nothing stopping um you from building out this. This tool right. was just um one layer, or one level um of it. But the kind of the feeling is um if you're already to the point where you're building complex uh, you know, control room setups, your VisNow might not be exactly what you needed, but maybe in in certain case it is.
0: I, I don't even know how. I mean, I, I, unless you really had a lot of experience, I think VizNow looks so key to being able to just throw this together if you're trying to put, set something up. It, it, it's an amazing right. um, interface. Right. Yeah, it's great. Right. Very good. Uh, let's, go to the, let's go to the questions. First question.
1: Daniel Goldstein in Baltimore, Maryland, writes in, if we wanted to move a talking head show like Office Hours to VizNow, what ways could we get the audio and video of each panelist into the cloud? Go ahead, Michael.
7: Um, This is something that a project that I'm working on now with uh, one of our clients. This is exactly what we've done. We've taken their talking head show, moved it to the cloud. Um, We use a combination of, we usually use NDI internally once everything gets in the cloud Um, to get contribution contributors to the cloud. uh, It's usually SRT, mostly because it's uh, just about any software that a contributor has supports it. So we have a SRT to NDI gateway server that sits um, on a public IP in our cloud. It live it transcodes everything live from that and then makes the uh, job of the TD or the whoever's running uh, vector makes their job really easy to pull those sources in. You just give them the name of an NDI source on the network and boom, they're good. They don't have to uh, worry about IP addresses or ports or any of that. So um, we specifically use Nimble Server, but there's other solutions out there like Sienna Processing Engine and... Um, there's a couple more compromato, I believe will do this. And, um, there's one more that's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember it right now.
0: And, And are they interacting through that SRT feed or are they interacting in another way and then having that SRT feed delivered to you?
7: Um, usually we just bring the, the SRT is usually one way into the cloud and then we have another means of, of, uh, return audio and video. Sometimes it's zoom, sometimes it's, uh, teams. It's a lot of times it depends on the networking environment and, uh, if we're restricted by firewalls, um, but it's usually uh, for return audio and video. It's usually a WebRTC solution, but we like the addition. We like the added quality and stability of the SRT feeds coming in for the uh, main cameras.
0: Right, but are they are they are they talking to each other solely in WebRTC and then but
7: delivering you an SRT as, as a separate feed? Is that how that that works right now? Exactly, and that's that's how we've been doing it. They actually stream their audio down both feeds yeah, yeah, into. Yeah. Yeah, into the WebRTC solution, and then also via SRT. So, yeah, that makes sense there, then you get the low latency that you would get with the WebRTC, but the higher quality with the SRT. Exactly, and then the added delay doesn't matter as long as everyone's exactly. hearing themselves in real time. the uh, The extra three hundred milliseconds from SRT doesn't uh, doesn't cause any awkward pauses. Absolutely, good, John.
6: Uh, I just wanted to say that you know, with the you know, getting the talking heads using something like Zoom ISO. Um, you know, you can, you know, deploy that instance. I think that's a macOS instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you can pull it, deploy that in the background in that VPC to get those to get that comp- contribution into the the switcher.
7: Not yeah. a
0: problem and I will say that a lot of us are looking at these kind of dual delivery you know using Srt with WebRTC seems to be a a, it, a lot of us feel like that's the future <laughs>
2: you know
0: is it's, it's to take to get the best of both worlds of of that process. Um, next uh, question.
1: Jonas to in Stuttgart, Germany writes in how does one get access to Viz now? Is it really free? All right, go ahead, John.
6: Yeah, so I think I, I I jumped on this uh earlier, but uh yes, it it is a free deployment tool, but it just requires you to be a VizRT customer. So if you have an existing um, you know, maybe trio engine license, uh you can talk to the your your rep and talk talk to them about creating an account and uh trying out the tools. Um one of the really nice things about um, vector and three play is uh they could run with their full feature set, but watermarked. So, um, you know, you could have so access to,
4: it. yeah,
6: exactly.
2: Yeah.
0: It's interesting to have three play in the, in the cloud. So you have that all you, and you get, then tie that back into the hardware interface, um, on the ground.
6: No, no. Uh, it's completely, you're, uh, yeah, it's completely running in the cloud. Um, 100% where, you know, your workflow would be, you know, bringing your, uh, sources into the cloud, you know, Pick your contribution method. Um, you right. Know, from well, for what the I'm asking of, is,
0: how do you yep. control it? Like, is it Oh, using yeah, the controller. The Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to be in the cloud, and and I understand. It. So it's got all these NDI feeds coming to it, but you still have the the organic controller that you would expect for a replay operator.
6: Absolutely. For for both of our products, um, for Vector and Three Play, the the hardware controllers on the ground. You can see behind me. I have the the switcher panel for Vector. Um, those are on the ground controlling the cloud instances. You go, Jeff.
8: That's what I was going to say. Yeah, the, the hardware control is, it's its almost like you're sitting at your machine uh, if you're sitting at it locally. It's so fast. And, and after just a small period of adjustment, you you switch, you operate, you do everything just like you're sitting at a normal machine sitting next to you. Just next quieter. Question. Quieter. <laughs> Quiet, quieter and more
0: inputs. Uh, go to the next question.
1: JJ McKenna in Santa Venetia, California writes in, sadly, the TriCaster today uses a screen scrape of vanilla Zoom, the highest quality online meeting platform, instead of an ISO. Might VizNow actually deploy a build that would use real ISOs instead of screen scrapes?
0: Now, you could. I think we were just talking about that with the macOS instance. You could be pulling that. And because the, the macOS in, instance, if you use that in the cloud, would then do a Zoom ISO over NDI. Is that, does that sound accurate? Yep, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Next question.
1: Jonas Detel in Stuttgart, Germany writes in: Can you also deploy general AWS machines for Zoom Rooms or similar?
0: I think that yeah, that that's outside of this deployment of a VizNow deployment, but but it seems like it's something you could you could set up and then again be delivering those over NDI, and I guess that would work with Teams as well. Go, John.
6: Right. Yeah. If uh, if uh, Zoom Rooms, if I don't know really the difference between Zoom ISOs and Zoom Rooms, but you know, if that's just software running on an instance, if it if it needs Windows, you can deploy the Windows instance, um, the empty Windows instance, and install the software on there. Or if you have to do something on, you know, a Mac or a Linux, you would do you could deploy that inside the um, VPC on the back end of your AWS console.
0: Yeah, the big advantage of Zoom Rooms it does work in the cloud, so it uh, yep. I think it's limited it's limited in the number of outputs that it has compared to what Zoom ISO does, but uh, you can get those individual outputs from there. Um, next next question.
1: Daniel Goldstein in Baltimore, Maryland writes in, are there advantages to using your cloud service if all the cameras and microphones are in the same hotel, ballroom, theater, conference room, etc.? Georgia.
8: Cameras, microphones, as long as the ingest hardware is all there, uh, that's fine to bring up to the cloud. If you're trying to use the cloud to do iMag, no, that's not the right solution. And, and that would be something you'd want to do with hardware on the ground. If you're doing iMag, the latency would just be too much,
0: and and if you had, what would you do if you had, let's say, thirty two channels that you had to in, to get into the cloud from a from a location for to do it in the cloud? What what would you would you just package those onto SDI, or would you, or how many channels? were would you use NDI audio, or what? How would you get all of those for audio channels? Audio, into channels,
8: the cloud? audio channels. Audio channels. Currently, right now, we would just embed them into the NDI. So, yep. uh, one of those big. Uh, corporate things that we did back in the beginning of COVID. Uh, we were bringing up uh, 14 different languages from a site in in Vegas and we had two different NDI channels running out and each one of those NDI channels had 16 channels per. So that that would be, and then then we would de-embed that. In this case, we use a, a different product. We did, we switched it with Vector, but we used uh, Santa Processing Engine to break up all the different audios to route them to where we needed to. Uh, there are other things coming, uh, like Dante Connect, that's going to allow a much higher audio count, but right now you can do it with with embedding all that audio, and we use a piece of software from AV Sono also that does NDI embedding, Uh, so you basically can take in the Dante locally and then embed it into the NDI stream and create your own NDI streams if you wanted to with specific names just for audio transport, and then it's NDI Bridge or Siena Cloud, uh,
1: however you want to get it to the cloud at that point. Uh, Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, I'm impressed by the VizNow interface. Are most of your users replacing on-premise facilities with it or augmenting them with cloud resources?
6: Go, John. Uh, quick answer is both. Um, I don't think there's a massive shift to to change and get rid of on-prem facilities and trucks. But I think it's a uh, absolutely a uh, cloud is augmenting right now. Um, you know, you know, I think the, the real discussion that I constantly am having with customers and naysayers is like, look guys, we're not doing the champions league final with cloud, right. That we're just like, we wouldn't in the U S do the super bowl, uh, main broadcast. Right. Um, but there's a digital show for for those uh, for those events. There's um you know a digital team, social media, all this different uh, content contribution um, that's going out, alternate feeds um, and that's where broadcasters uh, demands are and uh, cloud is there to help augment that. Go ahead, Michael.
7: Yeah, I was just going to reiterate what uh, John was saying. It's not you're not going to produce the uh, the Super Bowl or even uh, even a re- like a regional sports level show, which is which is my bread and butter. You're not going to produce the home or the away show fully in the cloud. But there are opportunities to to create these alternative feeds. Um, you know, the the Manning cast is what kind of spurred on this excitement when when that caught fire and everybody loved it. So I think we're going to see these alternative. Broadcasts, which are kind of taking the feed from the truck, and then overlaying additional graphics, or maybe one or two of their own camera angles with their own commentators or their own um, and their own graphics from the cloud, and then we'll 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 see all these additional feeds be able to be um, produced without having to roll another truck and have a crew a very small crew of maybe three or four people um, working from home or working from a hub facility somewhere.
0: Yeah, and we've done. I, um, we've done a, a variety of events where now we used to use a, i used to have a master control in in dc that was tied in at, at 20th and m so you you would we would have all the feeds coming into there and the advantage that we had that I could see using using this service for is that we would have five or six sites that we're pulling in. Each one of them has their own show. So each one of them has their own truck or, or fly kit. They're doing their own shows. And then we have a hosts that were remote and the hosts are sitting there talking back and forth and they'll go, now we're going to go to DC. Now we're going to go to Florida. Now we're going to go to here. And we're bouncing back and forth to those things. And there's a lot. Of, so for us, we did that all in hardware, which was hard. <laughs> so, so um, and, uh, but, but basically pulling all those feeds in and being able to jump to those different feeds, showing them. Um, but that part, that part of the puzzle would be much easier to do in the cloud than to do I mean the, the stuff on the ground belonged on the ground and the stuff in the cloud would have been much easier to do with it would have been much easier to do in the cloud than the way we did it, which was extremely expensive and um and cumbersome to to throw together. Go ahead, John.
6: Yeah, I just wanted to reiterate too, and and you know, prod Michael a little bit too. Um the you know live sports in the cloud and as a you know truck TD, you've done some projects um, with us just as recently in the spring, um, and you've had that experience with you know cutting cameras on site and I think that's a important thing to to talk about and and in various ways right. Uh, as an operator coming out of a truck and, and saying, well, I'm not going to be in a truck anymore, let's, let's cut this game. What was that experience like for you? But then also, maybe it's not, you know, touching on, uh, touching buttons and working with your um, coworkers workers uh, in a close, you know, a, a small truck anymore. But what about your day and um, your experience as an operator when you you know, you weren't getting on a plane and dealing with all that. I, I'd love to get that message and talking points out there because I think they're important.
7: Yeah, go ahead. Um, do you do anything that you want to add, Michael? To um, yeah, I mean, I can say we've already started to see a shift to um, not only cloud, but more of a hybrid approach, even from the uh, regional networks and uh, you know, cable networks for uh, for the, I want to say like the. Tier two sporting events. Um, it started during COVID. We had to produce everything from home, from our uh, from our truck at home, home and away games. So um, when we had to, you know, cut a full size, 12 camera, 15 camera uh, MLB game from a truck that wasn't even in the same city, and you know, latency was was part of the problem. But that could have been uh, that can be accomplished in the cloud, and we're seeing that now too with the at the regional sports level, the visit shows. Are using a combination, a hybrid approach. Uh, half the production team is not on site, and they're able to uh, to do this that way. So we're starting to see a shift. And from my personal experience, um, doing a show this way, as long as you have the right tech in place and you can manage the latency, it's very similar to sitting in a truck. There's not there's not a whole lot of differences aside from you know not being in a specific place. And you know, the like John said, the day is the day is shorter. Um, because you can just roll in, turn on your computer, well, go through your pre—you know—go through your setup, and you're good to go. Yeah, and, and I know that for for years, for a
0: decade, um, uh, Pac-12 was doing many, over 2,000 shows a, a year remotely, where they just had a they had a small van pop, pull up, and just grab all the all the singles from the cam—I mean, all the ices from the cameras—and send them back to San Francisco where they were cutting them all. So that idea of doing sports events. And it, it definitely had a huge impact for, again, for the, it wasn't the tier one solutions, but the tier two, right. um, being able to have the commentators have everything centralized was, was a huge cost savings. I mean, they were, yeah, it's. Um,
6: yeah, absolutely. Th- absolutely. Alex, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the, just the idea that what the PAC 12 did and like really harnessing that Remy model. Yeah. Um, you know, just think about like, do, do we really, do we need to, to pool a 40 foot truck for us, you know, eight camera, you know, volleyball game or water polo event. I mean right. that those are the conversations and, you know, economically what um everyone's going through. Um and uh, yeah, absolutely, dead on. Okay, go ahead, Jeff.
8: I was gonna echo exactly the same thing. Yes, having two engineers on the ground where we don't have to worry about uh them doing much other than just putting out the occasional fire. Uh, that's And the reason for having two is you got to back up. Uh, uh, N plus one is how we engineer everything. But everybody else in our business, in my business, we work remotely. It's just what we do. It,
1: it's it's second nature, uh, same as always. Next question. David Brady in New York, New York, writes in, for enterprise deployments, is there a way to leverage existing directory services a la Azure, or are there SAML mapping capabilities to OKTA SSO? Now, is this where
0: you start to be able to build drone from scratch i mean this is something you could you could build this instance yourself it just wouldn't be necessarily the the viz now go ahead jeff
8: yeah it would be taking vector plus and and having the installer and you just have to work with Fizrt rt to do that, that I, that's where i started i, I was started with Man, many many years ago, a dear friend that's no longer with us, uh, Zane, showed me this at a booth. I want to say at MIB and Cisco running in virtualized hardware. It was the predecessor, the VMC, the predecessor before. The, it was the IP series at that time. It was one of the very first ones that didn't really have a whole lot of I/O. It was just all about NDI, and uh, I remember him dragging me across the NAB floor, going, "You've got to see this! You got to see this!" And it was it was running on a server, locked behind a a window, but it was that was it. It was all virtualized, and so. That is the the beginning of where we're installing software. And so, yeah, David, it would be working with either a system integrator, such as myself, that are authorized uh, to work with VizRT or someone else. And, and you could deploy it in pretty much any environment.
7: Good, Michael. Um, yeah, I was going to say, as far as single sign on and those kind of mapping capabilities, um, AWS supports it natively. And it's just a matter of, uh, if you deploy the instance with VizNow, you just have to make sure you configure Windows to use whatever directory uh, you might have set up in Windows, and um, it'll uh, it'll allow users to log on with their own logons. Um, it's totally doable. Um, you just have to configure your environment to to be that way. I use I use AWS SSO in our production environment, and uh, it streamlines everything. Users logging onto machines, their connection to the VPN for control for their control surfaces, and and so on. So yeah. It's, it's possible to tie it into those enterprise-level um, security features. Next question.
1: Lenny Nelson in San Antonio writes in, what are some of the ground-to-cloud tools out there to get live cameras into Vector? Go, Jeff. NDI
8: Bridge, which ships with NDI tools, which is free. Uh, you do have to deploy that on a fairly beefy computer uh, server that's going to take your local sources, your NDI sources, convert them up and send them up to a, a a paired machine that's in the cloud uh, so that india tool set and then also the uh, sienna processing engine or sienna cloud which is their way of taking same thing NDI from the source or or even sdi sources we have boxes that do that also uh srt so that could be uh, high vision or, or pretty much any srt majwell you name it uh srt fees there's there's multiple ways my Of course, uh, one of my go-tos is live view. So I take live views in well, of my a- LU800 or the 600. That is a single-channel uh, version or the four-channel version of the LU800 Pro where I can actually send four signals directly up to the cloud. And then I deployed those uh, actual live stream servers in the cloud, the LU2000s are in the cloud doing the decoding back into the NDI. It's just another service. It's just another source there. You pick it off and put it in. Go so John.
6: I echo what Jeff's saying um the great thing about cloud the great thing about vector you know pick your contribution method um it can be anything any of the tools that Jeff said you know so many different companies and vendors uh have moved you know their encoders or decoders to cloud um for contribution uh, and then once it gets there uh you know you could either use, you know natively rtmp or or srt or or transcode to ndi and get the full benefit of ndi in the inside the production environment and then on the outbound you know pick your distribution method next question
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in what are the minimum internet requirements for tricaster now i'm working with a small local church and it seems like a useful solution for those customers that don't want to invest in hardware good michael
7: Uh, I started using uh, remote machines in AWS. It it wouldn't be just a TriCaster-specific question, but any remote machine um, on a 50-megabit cable modem connection. The upstream bandwidth doesn't matter all that much because you're just sending commands. But to give you an example, to drive two 1080p monitors on a remote machine usually pulls around 20 to... 30 megabits of bandwidth, and that's fairly high quality. The less motion on the screen, the lower that bandwidth goes. But you can get by with a with a mod, modest connection, you know, around 50, 60 megabits, which is pretty easy to come by in most places now.
1: Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, writes in, What VizCloud product or products would be the gateway into this ecosystem for producers with a hardware-focused background? Go Jeff.
8: I'm not sure this is really – it's really not super public right now, but it was talked about at IBC, but it's the new TriCaster now deployment, which would be a smaller input and output count than, say, VizVector. So I think that that is going to be a really attractive way to get people started into the cloud. It will still deploy similar to this where it's more of a deployment service. Uh, They're still working out some of the details and the pricing, but it's going to be fairly aggressive, I think you would say. And and still have the same capabilities of what you would have in a comparable TriCaster in a piece of hardware on the ground. Go, John.
6: Yeah, I just uh, Jeff Jeff spoke, you know, pretty direct about it. Um, so TriCaster Now um is would be considered a different service than VizNow, where TriCaster Now is will be a uh, you know a quote unquote SaaS service where VizRT will host the instance. Um the customer will pay um, daily, hourly to use the software, and there will be a a, a structured tier on a certain level of uh, Tricaster software for you to use. Um, you could bring your sources in, um, and then when you're done, you know the the instance gets destroyed, um, and then you can use it again, or you know you can build again and, and deploy again when when needed. Um, think more of that as uh, you know a Tricaster mini. Maybe it's four inputs, eight inputs, maybe up to to 16 inputs um with uh you know kind of increasing uh resource uh capabilities with your emmys and keyers and um outputs and things like that but you know the the two services are are very different where you know viz now you're you're in control you're always you keeping it it's running in your AWS account and and Tricaster now is you know Viz will host and uh you'll get you'll get charged for for that time and and that daily use next question
1: Robert Green in Los Angeles writes in what gear would you suggest getting for a freelance operator new to cloud environment t d playback cameras
0: so what gear would you if someone wanted to start and start to play with you know their a freelance operator i guess so you said some of this will work watermarked if someone wanted to get their hands on it and start to test it. Or to start to learn it, is there a is there an avenue for them to be able to do that?
6: So, with Viz University, uh, recently we've opened up um, the ability for freelance operators to uh, log in and learn um, some of the different software tools. Vector um, being one of them. Um, inside of those, you know, courses, um, there is a sandbox environment for you to to. Learn the software and play with the software, um, but then also, you know, if there's a a interest in getting your hands on the software um, to to put it in your own cloud, uh, you know, reach out to me, uh, you know, message me on LinkedIn or or, or email whatnot, and we can uh, find a, a, a solution that works right for you. Next question.
1: Jan Barnett in Poland writes in: How about hardware control? Can I use Stream decks and MIDI control faders? Go, John. I want
6: Michael to to take this answer first. Okay, go ahead. I, can, <laughs> I default I can to definitely.
7: Him. I can definitely take this answer. I have uh, I've trained a lot of freelance operators in the last three years to do exactly this. Um, the nice thing about the cloud is you can scale your control surfaces to your needs. Uh, nothing is a the Stream Deck XL has been amazing. It's like the de facto control surface. It does everything. And uh, you can you can cut a small show on it as long as you set it up right. Uh, most of my operators have two of those. And for the, uh, the smaller talking head style shows that we, we do, that works fine. Um, you can also use uh, MIDI control surfaces via Companion or uh, the awesome piece of software that Joe DeMax wrote, Central Control. Um, and you can have flying faders the uh, other ones that I've used are the X-Keys 124 or anything in the X-Keys lineup. Um, I've got I've got a whole host of control surfaces in this office that I've tested. And then, of course, you can use the uh, the Viz control surfaces too, the, the IP series control surfaces for larger needs. But uh, start small. I'd start with the stream decks because they're inexpensive, easy to learn, and then scale up from there. Go, Jeff. I would say Skip
8: Companion is... As far as setting up, yes, it's free, but uh, Jodamax's uh central control is just so much easier to set up, and especially you just point it to an IP address, and and you have to make sure the IP address has ports for us and things like that, but VizNow does all that for you uh, for the control side, uh, and, and if you need to get it deeper, it's not that hard to learn how to do that in security groups in AWS, uh, but yeah, starting with something simple and then interface within that software because it's just the middleware that just makes everything easy. It really does. Did you want to add anything, John?
6: Yeah, I mean, all of the different things that these guys talked about, the tools um, are compatible. You know, the um, Switcher itself, um, the APIs are public, so you can write your own um, little web GUI if you wanted um, as well to control. Um, there's, a, there's a multitude of different, um, you know,
1: tools to use to control this. Next question. Rian Smith in Trinidad, West Indies, writes in: I don't see pricing on the VizRT site. What's the basic switcher combo of features pricing? Thanks.
6: Uh, is there uh, a- I could, yeah, I can, I can take this. I, I probably can't answer uh, specifically the the price, just because I'm not a sales guy. To be quite honest, I I sit inside the customer success um, part of the company, uh, and my job is to to help the customers, you know, once that process has either begun or, or finished. Uh, but the, I think the pricing method is Viz has been traditionally a direct to, uh, you know, consumer. Uh, so you deal with our, the sales team in that way, but now, um, to kind of follow back into the whole discussion about, uh, new tech, you know, becoming one, uh, now one of the humongous benefits is that traditional way that you've purchased new tech gear with the partner channel, um, they now have access to the entire Viz portfolio. So what I would say um to get a straight answer from from them in, in whatever gear you're looking for, software tools, um, you know, customers can now go through uh like, you know, as an example, uh Alpha, ASG, you know, uh, Keycode Media, you know, all, all these different um, you know, partners um, from the traditional uh, new tech side. Next
1: question. on Burnett in Warsaw, Poland writes in, what are the options for sending cameras in synchronization? Uh, go ahead, Michael.
7: Um, there's a few different options. You can do it with SRT. Uh, Mikito X encoders are very good at this. Um, you could also do it with Sienna NDI Cloud. As long as you can get those... Uh, ntp timestamps into the feeds there's a, a lot of software out there that can decode it and resync. Um, i use personally i use nimble streamer to do this and uh, it works pretty well it does add a little bit of a delay um, but you just need that encoder to be able to insert the proper timestamps and both the sender and the receiver side to be looking at an ntp server so that they're on the same time reference
8: go jeff uh, for me, I kind of start back to my live view in the LU-800 because then those four signals or three signals, whatever we're sending up, multiple signals, they're synced together. If you're using two LU-800s, which we've done on occasions, uh, those are also synced together using LRT and their back end. Uh, for our studio counts, whatever we're like sending from Vegas to uh, – which we have a large studio there and we had all those uh, different language tracks and all, we were sending – somewhere around 16 channels, 18 channels, something like that. Uh, those were a couple uh, different NDI cloud servers. So NDI.cloud, uh, Sienna cloud uh, servers that were doing it to our, and it's a pair or actually it was four different machines running. So two on ground, uh, on-prem, and then two that are in the cloud. That's all also synced together through their proprietary uh, methods. Uh, I have a small little Makito. Um, definitely used Makitos in the past, but also have a competitor to them, which is the Monarch uh, from Matrox, which does SRT. And those four signals are also synced together uh, using the same method as what Michael mentioned. Uh, there's multiple ways to do that. Uh, we always hit our Sienna process processing engine and we have tools in Sienna processing engine to slip and slide the video and audio back and forth to also sync it so there it just all depends on your budget and and how many channels you need to send at one given
1: time too next question jack thompson in london writes in what options do i have for control as well as the first party panels can i use my x
7: keys good michael yeah absolutely you can use your x keys um like we said earlier, the secret sauce is that middleware in between. Um, you can use anything. Uh, you can even use, with central control, you can even use older uh, TriCaster control surfaces, the USB control surfaces that have been around for a long time to control right. vector. The, the API hasn't changed for quite a long time. They've just added but kept that backward compatibility. So, um, yes, you can use your X keys for sure. And last question for the hour.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, what are the barriers to bringing larger productions into the cloud? Do you think a control room in a Tesla or Sprinter van as used in the office hour space augmented by cloud resources could be a cost-effective solution for larger events? Good, John.
6: I think uh, this, this question hits hard for me. Um, I, I think it comes just straight down to education and knowledge. Um, we live uh, in an industry that sometimes is slow moving to to change um a lot of it is people's uncomfortable um using things that they don't know and the only thing that we could do um for that is to embrace it uh but educate and i think that's the the number one barrier um is is knowledge and education But jeff
8: i would say education is the number one barrier and right behind that is is availability of bandwidth so uh that's something we're we're still fighting and that we're having this conversation here in the US, it just always dumbfounds me because I've been at places down in Mexico where they literally brought me a gigabit fiber. This was eight years ago, and they just dragged it across the ground and then dropped the fiber in a tent for me, it goes, There's your internet. So I it can't. We can have access to a better internet. There's just so much red tape in the way right now that's keeping us from being able to move really fast forward to this. We've moved light years in the last three years, four years. Uh, COVID pushed us all into this remote model, working from home, doing this daily. Uh, but cloud in itself, bandwidth is a big part of of what holds back the really big shifts. Uh, but it's coming. Is I know that like
0: I, we're looking for a new space right now, and I the number one connection was, what connections do you have in the building? <laughs> like, like, you know like I, I can't, I, there's no reason for me to even come and look at your space if, if I don't know uh, what Internet you know, and that there is true fiber coming into the building is, is, is an absolute must uh, at this point, so absolutely. Uh, John, Michael and Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming to join us. Uh, it was a really good hour. So thanks, thanks again for coming in. And uh, and thank you to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Um, so it's a great for great first hour and second hour. Uh, thank you to the producers for asking all those questions. So both both in the first and second hour. Again, we can't do this without the pan- without the without all of your questions. So we really appreciate it. Um, remember that you can now ask those questions through the radio app um, that you can download through Discord. Uh, we'll make it more widely available soon, but uh, but stay tuned for that. And thank you to the incredible staff on the back end that um, that builds the code that we run this show on that manages, making sure that everybody's ready for the show and manages all these subjects and figuring these, all these bits and pieces out. And finally, the, the folks that are cutting the show, um, uh, that do it every single day, seven days a week. Uh, we really appreciate everybody's contribution. Tall traversal today, we traveled 116,000 miles. It's 187,000 kilometers, and that is 923 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours.